My guest today is Lynn Fisher, who recently joined AEI as a resident scholar and co-director of the Center on Housing Markets and Finance. Before coming here, she served on the faculty at Washington State University and the University of North Carolina and was director of the Housing Affordability Initiative at MIT. She's here with me today to discuss the housing crisis in America's cities, what can be done about it, and much more, I hope. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. As I put together these questions, a lot of uh, a lot of them had to do with sort of what's going on in these, you know, sort of, you know, high productivity booming cities. You know, San Francisco uh, is always in the news about their housing crisis. They had, they had a, uh, a referendum or something in California to try to build more high-density housing. So I've been concerned because I write a lot about economic growth, innovation, that these key cities, that there's a housing crisis, people can't move there, and that's bad for the economy. And I do definitely want to talk about that, but there's also sort of a, a broader housing problem apparently in America, uh, which is kind of, it's kind of interesting that we just we had this housing crisis you know, back in 2008, and you would have thought given its sort of central role in the Great Recession, that a lot of U.S. politics would have been about housing and about housing the past 10 years. And it really hasn't been. It's people, you know, it hasn't, wasn't a big part of these presidential campaigns. People never talked about it in debates, given such a central fact in the U.S. economic history. And now we're here in, in 2018. And if you talk to economists about what is like one of the central challenges in the economy, they talk, well, it's, it's housing again, maybe in a different way. So, I mean, just sort of, just sort of initially, do you have it? Why hasn't this been like a bigger part of, you think, the public policy agenda, even though it seems to be sort of core to our economic lives? It's it's a great question. I mean, I think the the piece of this that stayed in the the narrative and the, and the conversation that we're having uh, was certainly on the finance side, you know, because the mortgage crisis was so intimately tied to the overall um, boom and and subsequent recession. But we never talk about things like housing supply and home building. It's not sexy. It it's sort of something we didn't pay much attention to for the last 10 years because we overbuilt. And so we had to have a period of, of reabsorption of all of that stock. But then you look around one day and all of a sudden we have a millennial generation that's trying to you know, leave their parents' homes. We have, um, you know, they want to form households and we haven't paid much attention to our housing stocks. So you're right. We've, it's been out of the dialogue. We haven't paid attention to it. And now it's caught up with us again. And you know, you just do you know, you do a quick Google search affordability, affordability issues. You mentioned you have all these stories about these sort of millennials who say like, I'll you know, you know, the sad looking pictures of millennials in the New York Times saying, I'll never, I'll never own a house, I'll never have the kind of life uh, my parent had. So, is there a long term systemic problem with housing in America right now, or is it just? Uh, and I'll let you outline the problem, or is it more just kind of a short term thing? We're still sort of. You know, getting our bearings after the Great Recession and, and things will change or stabilize, or is there, or is there really a longer-term issue here? No, I think, I think there's a very fundamental and very long-term issue, and it's something, unfortunately, that's not going to be easy to fix, and that is we're not good at building new supply. We're not good at letting our cities transform themselves, remake themselves over time. We tend to use rules. We tend to have all sorts of you know, land use regulation, zoning, et cetera, that locks in our city. So what's built is there, and we sort of like it. You know, People who occupy it are like, well, I don't want my home to change. I don't want my neighborhood to change. And so our cities become ossified. They're not allowed to, to be redeveloped or to change over time. Um, I was just doing uh, a little bit of research on condominiums, uh, and I'm happy, because I'm familiar with it, I'm using a Boston data set. So you look at downtown Boston, 
the average age of the condominium stock, or I'm sorry, let's say the median, is 1905 was when the median uh, condo was built. We haven't, you know, this is stuff that's right downtown. It's right by Boston Garden. It's beautiful. It has all sorts of great amenities attached to it. But we haven't redeveloped any of that into higher density, you know, to provide more housing to, and to do other things. Maybe it should be office space now. I don't know. You know, cities evolve. And so we have all these rules, all of these um, desires, really, to keep things as they are. Um, and that's not going not gonna to work out so well. And are we talking mostly a sort of city problem? Is, the, is this sort of affordability and supply issue? Is it, is it, is it also it's kind of a suburban problem, an exurban problem? That's a great question, too, because when you talked about productivity a moment ago and kind of in the lead-off, we think of cities as being our productive engines. Uh, and certainly cities are where the problem is most acute. But if you talk to folks like right now about just doing a housing sale anywhere, upstate Michigan, for Pete's sakes, people will talk about, you know, really tight time on the market, you know, cash sales, people bidding in, in really bizarre parts of the country. So so there's other things that are going on, and it's more right, wide-reaching than and, just and is, cities. And, is it, and it's a, you know, supply and demand. It's a supply problem. I mean, is that, I mean, is that really... Is that really the issue? And why? I mean, it seems like one thing we know we should know how in this country is, is to build a lot of homes. If we have to build a lot of homes, why aren't we building a lot of homes? If you talk to developers, they'll say it's hard to tie up land. It's hard to find land, uh, and, and it's expensive. But even if you get hold of it and you find the oppor- uh, opportune site, it takes forever to to uh, get it permitted, to, to get permissions to do that. Um, there's all sorts of extra costs that go along with that, to, to access water, to build roadways and access points. And certainly, again, if you take that to a city, that all becomes more intense uh, and, and more costly. Um, so they're saying that you know all of those costs have gone up, and you know it's just become incredibly and, and costly to build. So and, even and though prices are, getting, are high, costs are high. And, and those so. costs, I mean, have they gotten? Have they just been gotten markedly worse, or just sort of the, you know a, you know a steady a steady increase? There's something that has happened in the last five years, which has you know caused them to to get to get much much worse, or is right. this just kind of the continuation of existing trends? And it's a little bit of both, but I think largely it's the slow accrual of all these. Mm-hmm. All of these uh, rules that we put in place, all of the land use regs, and certainly a lack of attention to infrastructure means that cities are looking for ways to fund development. You know, it's it's easier to go to a developer and say, you, Mr. or Mrs. Developer, you pay for you know, making our, our water system bigger or improving our sewer system in a particular place instead of sort of fundamentally thinking about how uh, property taxes and other things are going to be used in a budget to do that. So <clears throat> we tend to underinvest mm-hmm. in our city infrastructure, and then we try to find other ways to to actually put that into place. And that increases uh, you know, the cost of new housing and means we need higher price price points in order to justify that new, and, new housing. And just, this sort of popped in my head. How, how, so what's if you look at sort of what's happening in American housing, is that replicated? Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the numbers in sort of other advanced economies. Is that what's happening in, in Great Britain? Is this well, what's was, happening in yeah, France? Definitely. Or? I mean, if you see, think about Great Britain, I mean, they have a, a green belt around the city now. So, I mean, you can't build you know, outside of London very easily. 
Um, and these are places that if we think we have high land use regulations, uh, their, their land use regs are even more intense. So it is a, a, an issue around the world, but there's other places that have sort of figured it out. We don't think about uh, Japan as a place with high population growth, but if we look at Tokyo, Tokyo has continued to uh, expand. It's grown over time. And they do a tremendous amount of redevelopment of different parts of Tokyo at different points in time. People, uh, you know, these neighborhoods don't become ossified in a sense. They're always being redeveloped into a different use or into a more, uh, a more highly dense uh, use. And so there's places in the world where this has been figured out, but it's certainly not part of the DNA of the U.S. home building system. I, mean, I think it's interesting that Monica Prasad over at Northwestern University has written a lot about, you know, why sort of the U.S., you know, welfare state, you know, has developed differently than in, in Europe. And she talks a lot about what she calls, you know, mortgage Keynesianism, um, that rather than having sort of this big, you know, giant safety net and welfare state like they have in Europe, we decided to focus more on giving people sort of consumer buying power. And one way we did it by, you know, we want people to buy homes, spend money on homes, all things you have to, you know, spend, you know, to fill a home. And we had this huge, you know, mortgage credit system. So we have a big chunk of our economy, which has sort of been built on encouraging people to buy homes, yet we find ourselves here in 2018 with that being with that being a huge problem that you can't you can't do it even if you want to do it. Right, and that's a great point. Right, right now we are doing things to increase mortgage availability, even as there's no supply, and so we know that that's just going to be impounded into prices. It makes affordability worse. We right. we think we're trying to help first-time homebuyers, and in fact, we're just putting them in a more precarious position, stretching them further, etc. But but to your point about putting all of this on the the, the demand side of the equation and sort of ignoring the supply side, you have to keep the incentives in mind because those with the home already benefit from house price appreciation. Uh, they do. Yeah, right? Oh, and man. So, and, and who's That's making fantastic. the rules fantastic. about what's happening in your neighborhood? Well, those with that own the homes. And so this you know desire to kind of pull up the drawbridge and say, good for me, uh, really very, puts Lynn, the rest it's a of very the powerful <laughs> desire, let me tell you. Especially for those of us, maybe some of us, I'm not going to name names, who maybe, uh, maybe bought a home right at the tippy top of yeah, the market. And you're just hanging <laughs> Right? And they're like, hey, everything you're, everything you're saying sounds, you know, this is great. Constrained supply, lots of, lots of demand, home prices go up. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day um, who was, uh, you know, they, you know, they're about to sell their home, and they, they, they know that they knew I worked at a think tank. They're like, oh, so hey, so are we gonna have another housing crisis? You know, that, I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like. Lots of lots of credit out there, housing prices going up. Is, is that is that a risk? We'll have some other sort of big. We'll have another big drop. You know, my concern right now is that house prices, for whatever reason, I think it's a combination of the supply, but then adding additional mortgage credit to a constrained supply situation are pushing up houses. We're seeing house prices accelerate again, which is kind of weird this far into a recovery, right? We right. would have expected the, the fast house price right, there appreciation a, right, there to be behind it. recovery like and then in the things early years. slow down a little bit. And, and so if you look at all of our house price models, you know, forecasting, every one of the models keeps predicting a slowdown, and yet it doesn't happen because we keep just incrementally adding more credit, right? We're doing this pro-cyclical mortgage credit thing that we like to do. And how are we doing that? Too. How are we adding that credit? Uh, on, on all sorts of margins, the thing we've been watching a lot lately is uh, from debt to income ratios, right? Mm -hmm. So for every dollar of income people have, if we ha let, allow them to have a little bit more debt, they can pay more for a house. And in a supply-constrained place, that's immediately capitalized into house prices. Um, and so, you know, Federal Housing Administration, you can go up to a 57 
DTI, you can pay nearly 60% of your income towards housing, which does not sound sustainable not to me in any, any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, about 20% of new lending out of FHA is, has DTI greater than 50% right now. So that's sort of scary, right, that we're allowing that much yeah, I thought the whole uh, sort of lending. response after, after the, after the uh, financial crisis right. was we weren't going to do that. Yeah, uh, exactly. It, it was gonna, it, we're going to go back to the way they used to. You want to buy a home put down 20%, it's going to be a very solid sort of traditional, you know, mortgage, but we're not doing that. No. Well, we have we have a rule, um, you know, that's supposed to limit, an ability to repay rule that's supposed to limit uh, debt to income to 43%, but then we carved out exceptions for the GSEs, for, you know, for uh, the other government agencies that back loans, and they have used that to lean into the housing cycle instead of sort of holding firm, because we've even seen seen Fannie Mae, for example, allow uh, DTIs to go up to 50 in the last, they did that at the end of last summer, um, without as many compensating factors as, you know, it used to be you could get a little bit more DTI, but in some other area of the underwriting, they'd they'd hold firm and make sure you um, had some compensating factors there. They took that away. DTIs, uh, their DTI share jumped from like 6% of their lending up to over 20% of their lending overnight because people are in places where they're fighting, you know, bidding wars for houses. It's like, man, I can get some more debt. Great. I will in a heartbeat. Um, now, Fannie and Fairness has dialed that back. We haven't seen exactly what the result is, but they were surprised, I think, even by the amount of and is uptake. This, is this a risky situation? I mean, I, you're I, extending I, people. So imagine that we just, you know, I think I said in a recent blog, we just sort of juiced the economy, right? We had tax reform. We've had, uh, we took some of the, the bounds off our budget. We're spending more. Mm-hmm. So we've added this juice to the economy right now. And some people are worried we're on a bit of a sugar high. Right. Uh, and if the economy slows down in a year or two, when we're off that sugar high, then some people will lose some jobs, you know, maybe income, maybe we get some wage growth, but maybe that slows again. And folks then are in a precarious position because they've bought a lot of house um, and some of them won't be able to make their payments. Um, you know, at the same time, time in the market will start extending for some houses and we'll get a house price dip just you know, based on that sort of cycle. Uh, what share of Americans own their own home? How's that, how does that compare to before the Great uh, Recession? Are we sort so, of back to where we're at? No, no, we're not, we're not back to where we were. So for a long time, we had a, uh, well... Prior to the last run-up, we had a, a homeownership rate of around 64%. Right. We, we used lending to get that up to close to 69%. Right. And obviously, it dropped way down again. Now, that's stabilized. We're at about 63 a little over 63% right now. Um, long run, for the, for the U.S., under kind of normal lending conditions, it's probably about 65%. 64-65% might be a kind of a norm. So we're, we're right there. But uh, there's a lot of folks who would like to enter that market that have no hope of doing so with with prices where they are. I mean, I think I think some politicians would say, you know, that number, boy, we like we want people to own homes. It's good for communities. There's all these kind of spillovers. You know, people still want to own homes. We should try to get that number back up. Didn't work out so well uh, last time. But kind of like is economically, is it is it really good for people? A lot more people to own homes for society. Doesn't that also make it sort of you have sort of less churn, and it's hard. You know, if you right. want to move, you can't just leave your apartment. You got to sell your home, and if you have a, obviously this market right now, sorry, hurting mobility. If you, you know, if you want to move somewhere and buy and buy a house, is it is it net? Is it just necessarily better to have a higher home ownership rate, even if you can get there without, you know, 
crazy lending practices. Right. We as a society have believed that homeownership is good for, I mean, that's just sort of part of the U.S. uh, belief system. Um, But we certainly proved that we can push that too far over the last crisis. There's uh, having stable communities, having people be invested in their neighborhoods. There's a lot of good stuff that comes out of that, right? Investment in our kids, providing them stability um, and in neighborhoods. But um, surely you can push that too far. I think the big uh, piece that I've taken a look at over time is mobility. We definitely know that homeowners are less mobile than renters. Now, part of that's by choice. You choose to settle down, right. you know, have kids, do your thing. But you can certainly push that too far and make it difficult um, for people to, to chase a new opportunity, to go find a better wage or a better situation for them. And so the labor market can suffer some. Where that perfect spot is, I don't think is perfectly obvious. Like I said, uh, 64 to 65 seems to be something sustainable. If I just look at my uh, my Twitter like timeline on a daily basis, there, I, I, I follow a lot of people who live out in California, a lot of people in Silicon Valley. Uh, always a stream of of uh, of conversation and tweets, newspaper articles about about San Francisco, the housing crisis. What what is happening out there in California? It's it's it seems like it's bad right. for the economy. Yeah. Um, well, if you if you have a strong economy, a productive economy, you want to continue to grow that economy. You can't do that without housing. I mean, it's just a one to one correspondence. If you want a household, you need to have a housing unit. Um, and and if you can't expand that supply, then you're certainly constraining um, different places. Now there's some some uh, studies out there that talk about how much we're losing um, by not allowing people into more productive places. I think those numbers are up for debate as to exactly the scale of that effect. But certainly, well, I think we, we've mentioned in the past. Yeah. We've mentioned sort of the Moretti Enrico Moretti exactly. numbers that exactly. it's a significant. It's, it's a, it's uh, that, significant that number's depressant. a little crazy, but right. but but it's the, you know these are the engines right. of. Of the U.S. economy, some of these places you have to be careful. Um, I think San Fran, San Jose is a place of maybe a little bit more elastic housing supply, um, you know, but all of these places are seeing incomes go up at quite a, a you know good clip, and so we would expect house prices to go up faster than in other parts of the country. And that is something we have to come to grips with, that as we urbanize, if we're a more urbanized um, society, we're going to face be facing higher house prices in the future period. We are all going to pay more for housing because if we want to agglomerate in these places, right, I mean, that, that that's just a fact of life. Right. So, so, I mean, we so to, the economists would say, well, this is a good thing. We, you know, we, right. we, we kind of what we, we don't want people necessarily living out in the exurbs. We want them to move to cities, uh, get all these sort of economic agglomeration effects. And that's a good thing. So that, I mean, is that other people say, well, no, no, that's forget you economists. That's it. We don't want that. I, you know, we want, you know, people want to live in homes on a third, you know, on a third of an acre. They don't want to, you know, they want to, you know, have, you know, lots of parks and just they, they like that kind of suburban living. The economists say, no, that's not good for the economy. So yeah. we're, we're coming to a, a point where we're going to have to rethink this. And I don't know who's going to lead that charge. I think we're going to have to have some demonstrations on a very local scale. Um, maybe it's a bigger scale. Maybe someone like Amazon says, gee, we can't house all these people we want to bring to our new, you know, the second city that we're going to inhabit. Um, maybe we need to think about some deals that allow uh, uh, more housing supply to get built. Um, certainly some mayors and some governors who want to think about economic development are going to have to rethink the way in which housing supply is done. But how you overcome the the uh, the home voters, as right. uh, right. you know, Bill right. Fischel right. calls them, right. I mean, they are entrenched in right. allowing people onto the housing ladder 
given that those folks are already in place and benefit. Hey, so I guess you have people who like, you know, I you know I want a traditional suburban home. Yeah. And then you have the people who do live in these cities who don't want uh, yeah. who don't want there to be new housing. And they, they'll say because it's going to ruin the character of the city. Of course, the characters, as you mentioned earlier, characters of the city, they change. There isn't one yeah. character of the city. Yeah. I mean, we used to have, you know, horses walking down the middle of these cities. Uh, they, you know, yeah. we used to have no electricity. And, you know, character of cities uh, change. But it's even more complicated yeah. than that because there's other folks who say, you know, some of this old... Uh, maybe low-density housing is actually the affordable housing in our community, and we want to preserve that. So it's not all just, I want my house price to be higher. It's, uh, you know, we get sort of stuck in these ruts, and we don't understand that we're affecting the entire supply of, so, of what we can access. Right. So, you know, you, if you're the housing czar of San Francisco, what do you do? It's not clear that you can actually build enough housing there to do it, but I think you have to start allowing just higher density by right. Um, cities have accrued a lot of bargaining power over time vis-a-vis homebuilders and developers. Um, you know, we used to create a, a zoning map, and the map says you, know, you can have this many units of this sort of land use type, and that was a by-right zoning. Now all, a lot of that stuff's conditional, meaning that there's a lot of bargaining that happens um, that increases the cost of, of supply. So I think you have to have more by-right zoning. Uh, that's a just, inc- just, incrementally what does that higher mean exactly <clears throat> that, that you don't have to bargain for. It's, it's a right of the landowner. Whoever has control okay. of the land can. If it says you can build 20 units on you know a couple of acres, you can build 20 units right. per acre. Um, you don't have to go in and bargain over that and give things away and uh, you know basically uh, bargain part of the surplus from doing that away. Um, and so even if it's just incremental density at this point, allowing, you know, townhomes and, and, and uh, you know, duplexes and places that were originally single family, allowing uh, these duplexes and four-unit buildings to be redeveloped into 20-unit buildings, uh, some land assembly, I think you would see the market would take care of itself if the ability uh, I mean, is you know, it, was is created. It, is it a market will take care of itself, deregulate private sector solution, or... I mean, should is there something government should be doing? There should be, you know, government, you know, government built housing, you know, uh, rent control to make things more affordable. What is the role of government, and what are, what are people who the, want to use government? What yeah. are they adding? The, the role of government and, and and housing really ought to be a coordination function, right? We, it, it's very true. I mean, housing is sort of the canonical externality example of where you might see government uh, intervention. If I build my house on this lot. My investment's fixed. I can't pick it up and take it with me if I don't like what happens around me. And so having some expectations about what can happen next door or across the street or how transit's going to uh, you know, evolve in the future is important to making good investments. So you need some certainty around investment in order to allow the market to sort of do its thing. Um, but given the opportunity to develop, the market can absolutely produce the housing uh, that we need to produce. Uh, others at the center, Ed Pinto, would talk about building economical housing. So housing that serves uh, lo- lower middle-income folks, but without all the bells and whistles. We don't need granite countertops. We don't need you know these gigantic unit sizes. The market could figure out how to serve uh, a lot more people if just given the opportunity. Speaking of government action, uh, in the recent tax bill, there was a change in the mortgage interest deduction. What is going on with that, and how is that affecting, you know, home buying? 
Well, the world has certainly not ended since that happened, despite despite a lot of predictions that we've I mean, heard I, I, fr- I from some folks. I think maybe half as many people are taking that mortgage institute deduction that did it, did it did it before, so there's been a big change. Right, right. I mean, it, so if you have a greater uh, standard deduction, um, then on the margin, a lot of folks who used to itemize don't right. need to itemize anymore. And so that's actually really good for folks right on the where we would think would be at the margin mm-hmm. of homeownership. Um, perhaps those folks that now have more money in their pocket so that they can make whatever uh, housing choice they want to. It could be renter, it could be as an owner, um, but they have a greater ability to make um, that decision. Where the the changes to the mortgage interest deduction and to the deductibility of um, uh, other taxes really hit was at the very you know at the higher end of the market, but that's a relatively small percentage of overall U.S. housing that I think um, you we're know, not, had. We're not going to have a great deal of sympathy, are we, for the the higher end, right? It's, I mean, that's I mean, if you're talking about who who you know who the winners and losers, uh, yeah. I mean, that's not that's not, not, but but yeah, I think you were. Uh, alluding to before I interrupted you, the market hasn't collapsed. It, it, it's amazing. Yeah, right. We had, you know, what, uh, what, the city of Seattle and San Francisco had 14% year-over-year growth in the first quarter of this year. I don't think, you know, they even saw a road bump from this, you know, so um, thus far it, it hasn't been uh, an issue. I mean, if, if we, you know, if we actually, you know, phased out this mortgage interest deduction over 25 years, some long period, I mean, again, would we really even notice it? If we phased it out, I don't think there'd be a whimper as it was done, and it might actually help our uh, deficit situation, wouldn't it? Well, again, uh, we're talking about you know the housing prices, you know, out west, you know, Seattle. Uh, we're going to bring maybe bring bring a little bit of that out east. You know, Amazon is talking about you know creating this you know second headquarters and probably somewhere on the uh, east coast, maybe Boston, New York, Washington D.C. What would be the impact? Let's say on Washington, we're doing from Washington D.C., so maybe being going to be a little parochial. This is a very, you know, it's already a a place with you know high housing prices and housing prices with very you know very good year over year gains, and suddenly you drop a major corporate headquarters where they're talking about thousands of thousands of workers. What would be the impact on a housing market like this, which is already pretty built up? For the D.C. area, um, it it could be pretty traumatic. I mean, they're talking about. Uh, I mean, more housing than we've built in the last couple of years being needed almost instantly. So, uh, I don't. I don't think I have a good elasticity point estimate for you there. Um, but it would certainly be something. And it's more than just housing. I mean, we need the housing, but we would need uh, it, transit, right? Traffic, <laughs> um, h- how we get people from point A to point B. Uh, I think all of that's impacted by by these decisions, and they just can't be taken lightly. I think. I think at the end of the day, housing's going to have to factor pretty highly into mm-hmm. Amazon's choice because they, uh, if they don't see where new housing could be added to the market, I don't see how they could expect to be able to, to uh, uh, get the employees that they need for mm-hmm. this new, new production. Um, to what extent, uh, we talked a little bit about the mortgage interest deduction, to what extent is this really kind of a federal issue versus a, a local issue? I mean, uh, what can the federal government do to, you know, to help create more, more housing? There's huge tension here, right? Because localities, you know, there there is a good. It seems like thing. A fundamentally a local issue. It, it is. I mean, at least in the U.S., it has fundamentally been a local issue because localities have largely had the ability to determine 
land use regs, zoning, et cetera. In some places, that's more of an issue than others. Some places are super highly fragmented, you know, like in New Jersey, where you have tons and tons of cities over a very small land area. You know, in California, it's more county-oriented, so it's bigger-based, and you have a little bit more thoughtfulness about some, some things. But um, the tension, of course, is that for the federal government to tell in, uh, local communities how to zone uh, would be a disaster. I mean, people would really, I think, be quite up in arms about um, that kind of oversight. And that's certainly one of the um, one of the reactions we've seen with some of the af- uh, affirmatively furthering fair housing proposals, this concern that federal government is starting to uh, try to dictate in some ways what happens at a local Because people, level. they'll say we should need some sort of, you know, like they did with this race to the top with education, that there should be, you know, incentives, uh, you know, for, for, for states or for local communities to, uh, you know, to loosen these land use regulations, uh, maybe maybe a little more of a stick than a carrot that you that you you change how much transportation money you give yeah. some of these places that whether whether it's by carrots or sticks that they need that the federal government must nudge these communities right. federal government or state governments right. i mean state governments ostensibly control who has the right to zone and uh, enact land use um, regulations etc um, i think the the trick to that would be allowing uh, localities to figure out how they were going to respond to a mandate for more housing, to allow them to figure out here versus there and not micromanage it, not require a lot of planning, not require a lot of bureaucratic sort of responses uh, and rules that people can gain, but rather if someone was going to, if I was czar for the day and said, here's how we're going to create more, more housing, I would think that um, you know, the, the, the new housing that was created would have to serve a greater distribution uh, according to income mm-hmm. than it does right now, which means you would have to rethink things like California now wants to require solar on all new houses, right. right? Some of those things would have to be rethought and that there would have to be some minimal amount of housing that would be built. But I would be... I, I, pick whatever carrot or stick that you wanted, right. I would say, you have to build more housing. We'll come back in five years and see how you did right. Right. And, and not create you know, something terribly um, rule-oriented. And I mean, what, what are the odds that this is, <laughs> that if we, if we came back five years from now or 10 years, we would see, uh, sort of, as you sort of look at where this is going, that, there's, that there will be big changes and yeah. there will be more housing built? Or is this going to be, that's just the way the United States is, is that you know, they have these cities, they're going to be super expensive, and people won't people won't be able to move to them to take the jobs there, and maybe the jobs will eventually go go elsewhere, and who knows? I, I think there's a couple of points. I think that there is going to be enough demand that there will be a, a political voice there at some point, and uh, individuals who are not already into home ownership will have some voice to try to. Like all millennials, yeah. you know, and there's who, a whole you know, group of young people who probably don't want the world to work this way. Yes, right? much so, like my uh, producer research yeah, assistant yeah. Matt, uh, very eager to buy a home at some point. And yeah, maybe we, yeah. we need to get him in a house. And who might be interested in some innovative products right. and some new stuff? We could experiment. We're creative people. We right. could do that given the chance in some cities. So I think that that group of people has a voice to exercise. Um, but the economic pushback that you're talking about when pe- cities start to realize that they're not growing. <clears throat> in the way that they should, that wages aren't growing. That there is some feedback here that, that suggests that... Certainly real wages aren't growing. Real wages certainly aren't growing. You know, there there's some places that could start innovating. But it, it 
probably can't come from just individual localities because you know, there's a coordination problem. If, you know, one tiny community says people can build anything, then they will and they'll be overburdened. So there is a need for coordination that probably does have to come from a state or federal uh, entity to try to do some nudges. Um, But we need some experimentation. We need some smaller communities, some mayors maybe to step up and say, we're going to do things a little bit differently. You know, maybe a place like Denver that has a pretty big millennial underpinning might be able to uh, do some of that. They've, They've done some things like make it easier to build condominiums. So it's not, you, you don't believe this is an intractable problem just because, if, you know, if, if, if it can't keep going on, then eventually yeah. it won't. Keep. I'm trying to put a silver lining on it. Okay. But in the near term, it's really hard to see how this changes uh, over the next five years. It's it. This is a longer term problem that's going to require probably some serious upheaval to get people to pay attention. You started out today by saying, why does no one talk about this? Well, because no one wants to talk about it, right? It is much easier to try to find, it's like whack-a-mole, right? It's much easier to say, let's make housing finance more, you know, easier. That, that'll that fix the problem. Or let's, let's try to build more subsidies into the system. Let's subsidize more housing. And we build, you know, three new housing units for an exorbitant price. It, it always feels easier to try to find these financial mechanisms or or to put the problem on someone else and at the bottom you know bottom line here is we need more supply and it's going to have to come from everyone my guest today has been lynn fisher and since you've just said that this is a long-term problem that won't solve any tension we'll be sure to have you back on and talk about it we'll see you then